If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Slate's Working Podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions, fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash working. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Arun Vanagopal, a reporter at WNYC in New York and host of its Micropolis series, which takes on issues of race and identity. On today's episode, we talk with someone who spends all his time with human remains. Well, mostly human. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, My name is Bradley Adams. I'm a forensic anthropologist at the Office of Chief Medical Examiner in New York City. And how long have you been doing this? I've been in New York City since 2004, but I've probably been doing forensic anthropology since the early 90s, probably around 93 or 4 was when I first started doing casework as a graduate student. So tell us what forensic anthropology is. I mean, a forensic anthropologist is going to be somebody whose specialty is working on the human skeleton and is really, I mean, that's what I've spent a lot of time, a lot of uh, years studying is, is the human skeleton and being able to understand every twist and turn and bump and feature on uh, the human skeleton and being able to interpret it. And uh, for forensic anthropology, it's obviously within the forensic context, within the medical legal context. So helping medical examiners determine cause and manner of death and identification of individuals and uh, and things like that. Now, w- your predecessor, she was, am I right, the first person to hold the job of forensic anthropologist for the city of New York? That's right. She was, before that, they had had um, people as consultants doing forensic anthropology casework. She was the first full-time employee of the agency. Why is, why was she the first? Is this a relatively new field? Was it not as much of a demand for, for that kind of service back then? Well, I mean, I think back then and even today is not commonplace for every medical examiner's office to have a forensic anthropologist. I mean, it's probably more of an exception than the rule, to be honest with you. There's certainly a lot more 
people interested in wanting to do forensic anthropology than there are positions for. I think the good thing is you're seeing more and more offices start to appreciate the the role, the benefit that a forensic anthropologist can bring to an office. I think New York City was one of the earlier ones to, to recognize that. And I think it's because, you know, a lot of that's obviously due to Amy. But when she was hired, she was actually, in theory, going to split her time between doing anthropology and working with the DNA lab. But then they ended up there was enough casework that she really never did any of the DNA side of things. So she basically did full-time anthropology. And then very soon after that were the uh, you know, events of 9-11. And I think that really brought anthropology into its own in New York City because of the complexity of working with the 9-11 um, victims and the, the level of body fragmentation there and the mixing with debris and the, just the whole complexity of that process because that's where an anthropologist working with small fragments, small bone fragments, you know, sometimes even knowing what's building debris versus bone. You're talking about, you know, very small, like the size of, you know, a penny type type fragments that there may be something identifiable as human or not to at least segregate this stuff out. Um, so, you know, very, very challenging. And anthropology played a big role in morgue operations and even work out at the landfill and, you know, different different aspects there. And, you know, that's another component that I haven't mentioned, but, but anthropologists working on the disaster side of things. Um, so I think it was a lot of, with World Trade Center, anthropology really really took hold not only from casework but you know larger larger issues from disaster preparedness and so from that point i think uh the agency here has embraced anthropology and we've actually been able to grow the department so now that there's several anthropologists that work here so give me a sense of one particularly say challenging case i mean you're often you're getting there not when a body is entirely intact right you're often getting there when a body is you know it might it maybe just be bones right and so sometimes it's really hard to figure out what you're looking at correct yeah, I mean, definitely if we're going to respond, if the anthropology group is going to respond to the scene, if we're going to go out to the field, it's not going to be your more kind of typical death scene of maybe, you know, a, a person found uh, dead in their locked apartment. You know, that an anthropologist is not going to go. The, the agency has death investigators, and they will, will go do that. If you get something with a very decomposed body outside where maybe there's remains that have been scattered for one reason or another, we would go to that. We get uh, any case where there's possibility of a buried body, we would go there. Um, if skeletal remains are found, you know, somebody sees bones in a dumpster and they see they're big, they think they might be human, we'll either respond to the scene or a lot of times I encourage the, the officer at the scene or our death investigator when they get there to send me pictures because one of the first things is, are they human or not? And a lot of times people, maybe because of the crime shows and everything, they may see a dumpster with bones in it and think, oh, there's a dead body in there. And it's like, you know, somebody threw out their the, the pork ribs from the night before and, and they're not human. So it doesn't need to be anything anybody responds to. You don't need to send detectives out there, crime scene. You don't need to send all this because they're not even human bones. 
So they, it could it could totally range from from all all so, of the places. So sometimes you get yourself like somebody's barbecue left over. Oh, absolutely. We had a call today about that with uh, it, 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 you know somebody sees some bones and, and we need to make the make the call. Are these human or not? And uh, um, and sometimes if they even if they're human. They don't have to be a forensic case. There's a there's instances. There's lots of cemeteries around New York City, right? And so um, we had a case in Queens not too long ago. There was uh, some utility construction happening. They were doing some excavation. They hit some bones. We were notified, and it turned out they were actually human bones, but they were from probably a uh, you know burial from the 1800s, like an old grave that had been kind of forgotten. So that's not a forensic case. That's not something our office really does anything further than that other than notify the proper people to uh you know further investigate are there is this a cemetery here is this some isolated thing but it's, it's not a forensic case of somebody who's needing a death certificate and a cause a manner of death issued so um so yeah we get those we get all kinds of things and that's a lot of th- times i mean anthropology you get you get kind of the weird unusual stuff and uh you know it's, it ends up being being pretty pretty interesting cases so tell me about one of them Tell me, take me to one that was particularly challenging. Body is found in a field somewhere in the five boroughs. Okay. And uh, take me through the steps that finally helped you identify who this person was. Well, I'll tell you one that's challenging, but it doesn't have the the resolution of figuring out who the person was. But it's still, just because it's a recent case, it's one, one we're still working on. Is um, and Well, I'll kind of walk you through the, the, the steps. So... I got a call from, actually, I think I got the initial call from NYPD. Um, we have a very good working relationship with uh, a lot of the crime scene unit and the canine guys and everybody. So um, I get a call from NYPD saying that they're at a scene and they think they've got the skeletal remains of a young child. I'm at my house. This call comes at night, right, because you can get called anytime. And so the first thing I say is send me some pictures because I don't want to confirm it's actually human right because sometimes again people see bones and they might in their head think they're human so he sends me some uh some photographs um and i look at them on the blackberry and uh they are actually human like that's this is actually human but they're not from a child these are bones from an adult but they're definitely definitely human so we'll get the the team together and go out to uh go out to the scene and and where was the scene this one was in Brooklyn. Where? Can you tell me? Uh, this one was over kind of Coney Island area. So we, we head out there the next morning because at this time it was dark. So we, you know, it was in kind of a wooded area. So we went out the next morning. And in this case, we had the remains of basically the torso. And then sort of also nearby were some of the, the limbs, like the arms and the legs. And... It became very interesting in that case because the body had had obviously been dismembered, um, but we were able to look at this and say that it was a female. She was in her probably late 20s to mid-30s. There was some mummified tissue. In this case, we were actually able to look, and, and on the leg, there was a faded tattoo. And we used some infrared photography when we got back to the lab, took all the remains back to the lab, and we were able to visualize this tattoo that... You know, to the gross eye, naked eye, you, you you couldn't really tell what it was. You just knew that it looked like there was some sort of design there. And once we used the infrared photography, you could see there was a, a heart with a little banner going across it, and it looked like the name Monique. We, you know, we've got a name. We don't know if that's the decedent's name or if that's 
somebody, you know, a, a child, a mother, whoever. Um, but we've got a lot going towards identification in this case. And this is, again, one that's a, a very recent case that is still not solved. We were able to get a DNA profile from this. We submitted a bone sample. We got a full DNA profile. That DNA profile was compared against the National Missing Persons Database and Convicted Offender Database. It didn't hit. There was a hand also recovered that we were able to get fingerprints. So the decedent, the dead person's uh, fingerprints, those were run against all the uh, fingerprint databases and hasn't hit. So here we've got a good profile based on our skeletal analysis, knowing that this is a young, younger adult. We've got fingerprints, we've got DNA, we've got so much going for this case as far as identification, and and we still don't know who it is. I mean, certainly must be a homicide, but um, really the investigation has is limited for the detectives working on the case because without knowing who the person is, it becomes very difficult for them to investigate who killed this person. And do you know how she died? No, we don't. And that's one of the problems with um, remains that are very badly skeletonized is that there is a potential that somebody gets killed without any sort of uh, impact to the skeleton. I mean, you could potentially strangle somebody and not break any bones. You could stab somebody and not hit any bones, but still kill them because you're hitting vital organs. Um, you know, I guess it'd be possible to be shot. And again, the bullet doesn't hit any, any bones. So once all the tissue is gone, then it, it is potentially more difficult to say. This episode of Working is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com working. That's braintreepayments.com working. Tell me about a case where you, you found some resolution. We had a, there was a really interesting kind of bizarre case that I think, uh, that has a nice beginning, middle, and end. It was from several years ago. Um, the FBI was doing an investigation, and it was nothing, not a homicide investigation. It was basically just a kind of a mafia loan sharking type of investigation. And they had a guy, the cooperating witness, that um, was wearing a wire and collecting information for him in this loan sharking case. And so he was in a, in a vehicle talking to some somebody who obviously didn't know he was being recorded, and this guy started basically complaining that he had killed somebody, and uh, you know it was a hit for the mob, and he had not been paid, and how he was basically just venting because he was very upset that he didn't get paid for this murder that he committed, and so the FBI investigation, you know, once they have this, now it switches to. Uh, a homicide, potential homicide investigation. So they make arrests, they get more people to cooperate and give them information. And so the story comes out that uh, the mob wanted wanted this guy killed because he kind of had a big mouth and was talking. So they lured him to this house in Staten Island um, where the plan was that this guy was going to kill him, um, kill the guy with the big mouth. So that happens. So he lures him to the house and uh, kills him. 
and then devises this plan to get rid of the body where he goes to the hardware store and gets gloves and plastic and drop claws and saws and things like that and gets some friends of his and uh, then they go back to this house in Staten Island to make the body go away. So the story was that they um, cut up the body and then they took it down into the basement and they burned it in the furnace. So the FBI investigators go to the scene and they search where the body was supposedly stored and they don't find any blood evidence there. They go into the kitchen where the body was supposedly dismembered. They don't find anything there. They uh, go into the furnace to look where the body was supposedly burned. And during the lag time between when this murder happened and when the FBI got the information, the house had had the furnace replaced. So the old one had been hauled off to like a scrapyard and was gone. So at this point, they don't have anything. Eventually going through the house, they found one single drop of blood that they were able to DNA type back to this this missing person who was supposedly killed. So I know this isn't sounding like an anthropology case yet, but here's where the twist comes is that, so at this point I have no involvement, right? right? This is all an FBI case, but I get a call because they get additional information that one of their informants says, after this body was burned in this furnace, all of the ashes were scooped out and they were carried out to the front yard and they opened a manhole and they dumped them into the septic tank. So I get this call saying, like, hey, Doc, if there was bones put in a septic tank, would they still be there? And I said, yes, they, they would, because at the point the bones are really burned, they're almost like turn up to like a gravel-type consistency, so they would have sank to the bottom of the septic tank, which I'm not sure that's what the answer they were hoping for, because then the next step is to dig up the front yard and take out the contents of the septic tank, right? So we go out there and we excavate the septic tank and using like a big vacuum truck, suck out all of the sludge in the septic tank into a truck that can then be evaluated like off-site. So we go through with the, uh, the FBI evidence response team folks and go through this disgusting septic tank sludge, right? And don't find anything until like the very last few scoops of sludge come out of the truck and then we find bone fragments not a lot but some bone fragments very small pieces and there was one bone that was identifiable as a human fingertip just the bone right underneath your fingernail and then like 45 or 50 grams of other other bones like a like a full body cremation you should get around 3000 grams we've got like 45 grams so we have enough that they were pretty excited that we had like human bones in a septic tank so the story's going along very good um and so they had enough that it was going along to trial so like 11 days before the trial happens i get another call and they say hey we got more information that supposedly the guy who took the furnace out to the scrapyard said it was filled with all kinds of debris and stuff, and he dumped that whole, the contents of that out behind the, the house. Do you think they would still be there? And I said, yeah, I think, again, they would still be there if they got dumped out behind this house because they're not going to, I mean, there's going to be like gravel. Um, so we should definitely, definitely go look. And so we went 
to the site, we cleared out some of the vegetation. And in one area, we've, I saw some, uh, there was some like kind of charred bricks and things. So we cleared that out. There was these, these plants growing over it. So we cleared all that out. Um, a few days later, realized those plants were poison ivy, which was not, not very good. But uh, um, so, and then underneath that was all this charred material. And you could just see bone fragments. We found knife blades. We found saw blades. We found parts of a cell phone. We found parts of, like, a metal insole of a shoe. We found almost two pounds of bones came out of there. So from the head to the toe, and on these bone fragments that we were out, which are all very burned, right, we could see saw marks in some of the bones. So we knew that the body had been dismembered. We had, you know, bones representing the, uh, you know, head to the foot. So we had every, everything was there. So, it, again, wasn't every, everything. I think some stuff probably still went away to the it was still still in the furnace but uh now we had a, a very large percentage of the body of the guy that uh you know was supposedly put into the septic tank but clearly they didn't they didn't get much of everything so then it went to trial they had uh even more evidence than they had before we were able to take measurements off of the the cut marks in the bones and compare those to exemplars of the exact type type of saw that there was a receipt that they bought at the hardware store and the measurements and everything matched up perfectly so it was a really nice case it went to trial um you know the guy got 25 years to life for uh for the murder and it was a really i think a great example of anthropology from the start of the investigation being at the scene to the lab analysis, analyzing the burn fragments, looking at the dismemberment cut marks in the bone, to the actual you know trial and conviction. That's some story. That's, that's great. A, that's, a, that's I think that's a, a very interesting story. It kind of it has a lot of uh, has some some weird components. So I think that's the only septic tank t- case that I've that I've had. But your only septic tank story. Yeah, hopefully the last. Right. <laughs> yeah, so. Hopefully the last. <laughs> so. You've got a couple um, skulls sitting here next to my arm. Why don't you tell me a few of the things that we can learn by just looking at these uh, these sample skulls here? Okay. I mean, from the skulls, if we're talking about identification, like figuring out who somebody is, what anthropologists are going to do is, is determine what's called the biological profile. And the biological profile would be looking at somebody's skeleton and saying, you know, what they would have identified as in, in, in life as far as, like, their age at death, um, the sex of the individual, their ancestry, how tall they were. And so every one of those components is going to help missing persons detectives, you know, everybody narrow down the pool of potential individuals that this could be. So the skull is going to be really critical for a lot of that, um, especially looking at uh, whether the person's male or female. The skull is probably second second best to the pelvis. So we would look at features on the skull, like do you see big brow ridges over the eyes? Then that's something that's going to be more typical of a male than a female. Do you see like prominent muscle markings on the back of the neck? Again, that's going to be more male than female. And generally, the male skull is going to be just more robust, so larger. But the pelvis in adults is going to tell you more of the, the, the true story. And that's simply because the female pelvis is going to be configured quite differently than a male pelvis to allow for childbirth. Um, speaking of children, it's sort of interesting if we had the skeleton of, say, like a very young young child, a young boy or a young girl, say just a few years old, um, 
we really wouldn't be able to look at the bones by themselves and say that this was a, a boy or a girl because you don't really get those markers in the skeleton that help you say male or female from a gross analysis until after puberty. So uh, really the most uh, accurate way to determine if it's a boy or a girl is probably going to be through DNA analysis. Do you see a fair number of kids? Not skeletonized. Um, we, we, I wouldn't say we n- never have, but it's, it's rare that there's like a skeletonized child, but we do you know, sadly get a fair number of child abuse cases. And anthropology won't work with every single case, but there's certainly cases that we will um, lend our expertise to to do the analysis, uh, whether there's some fractures on the, on the skull or quite commonly there's rib fractures. And so the medical examiner might ask us to take a look to help document if we can tell, like, number of blows to the head. Is there more than one? Do some, you know photography and documentation of where the fractures are sometimes we'll get ribs that we will clean up so that we can look at the at the bone and you know say the story coming from the the parent or the 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 caregiver is that you know the baby was on a changing table and fell on the floor and this was the first time this has ever happened and you know otherwise has been happy healthy and we look at the ribs and we can see areas that have large calluses showing a previous fracture that would have happened, you know, at least weeks prior. You might see, you know, we've had cases where you see at least three episodes where you see well-healed fractures. You see fractures that are in the early stages of healing, and then you see fractures that are have showed no signs of healing. So you've got fractures that could have happened, you know, weeks ago to you know months ago. You've got fractures that happened in that intermediate time, and then you've got fractures that show no healing, which means they happened around the time the baby died. You know, something like that can be very critical and crucial to to the prosecution and development of the case to see, does the story that the skeleton is saying match the story that's coming from, you know, the caregiver, the, the, the family that was with this child? What about when you're just sort of working on a case here in the lab and it hasn't, you know, you're just doing your thing? Do you ever feel like a sense of, like, the humanity of the person or is it still pretty much detached yeah i mean i think over time you gotta kind of get a little bit desensitized to it i would be lying if i said that you know working with the like the babies and the kids i don't think you ever really get used to that that's always kind of tough but you know the 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 other stuff i don't think you want your emotions to really get involved and kind of cloud your judgment on the analysis you're doing and what you're looking at so i mean i think after this long i I just who knows? I, when my, my grandfather was a funeral director, which is a little odd that this is what I'm doing now. Not that it's funeral directing, but it's still, you know, working with death. Um, but uh, I mean, I remember growing up in, uh, in Kansas and uh, as a kid, I would spend the summers in the funeral home, you know. So that was maybe that desensitized me from, uh, from youth, like, uh, you know, literally to get to the garage, you'd go through the embalming room, you know, to get to my bedroom, you would go through the casket display room. So, uh, you know, it's probably looking back on a sort of an unusual, unusual childhood. But uh, yeah, maybe it was uh, formative. That's interesting. So there were these early signs that you, I mean, not signs necessarily, but things that perhaps made this feel a little less um, exotic. Maybe. I mean, I certainly never wanted to be a funeral director, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, something I kind of look back on and wonder, like, did that have anything to do with it? I mean, it's not like I was in the, in there assisting or anything, but just being surrounded. I mean, they definitely saw 
you know, my share of dead bodies as a child that for some reason seemed normal. Like, doesn't everybody spend the summers in a funeral home? I guess I, apparently not. <laughs> All of us, of course. <laughs> I mean, I got to admit when I, when, when, when we first met downstairs and you were showing me some of these um, skeletons laid out and you're telling me the stories and you're showing me these sawing marks, like these cut marks, I was, I was kind of like creeped out by it. And I was just thinking like when you're dealing with, you know, you go to a crime scene and you're handling um, even some soft tissue, flesh on some bones and stuff like that, you know, does that ever kind of feel eerie? No, I mean, I think that's, again, something with part of the training. I mean, even, like, working as a grad student at Tennessee, like, right, right at, the, at the research facility and being around decomposing bodies. I mean, that to be honest with you, that was something when I went to grad school. Like I said, I was interested in archaeology first and just dry bones. Like, I didn't have any interest in the soft tissue. And I didn't know at the time. Once I kind of thought, wow, this forensic stuff, I was there. I was like, you know, kind of got a little, you know, a little taste of it, a little glimpse of it, you know, thought um, – could be interesting but i there was still kind of that unknown factor like am i going to puke like the first time i like have to stick my hands into a decomposing body or is am i going to be okay with it and i wouldn't say it's pleasant but you know you, you, you get used to it and it was something that i realized I, I i could do it's certainly not for everybody right the same way i don't want to be a medical doctor like i don't want to put my hands all over a living person right i think that's to me that seems kind of gross right i don't want to like poke and prod somebody uh, i'm much much happier working with the with the, the dead dead people than uh, than the living so but everybody's got their own niche right so and i think this was something that it could have been something that i was completely repulsed by and i'm sure that does happen to people like people that see it on tv like oh i want to be a forensic anthropologist it looks so cool i think uh you know you don't you don't catch that much on tv right so the reality of it could be very different than what people see in the, you know kind of envision in their head that it's going to be this like oh every case is going to be these white clean bones and it's going to be like super sexy job and everything like that i mean it's not reality Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this podcast. You can email us at working at slate.com and dig through our first three seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our senior producer is Mike Volo and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Arun Vanagopal. See you next time on Working. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.